Investors Chronicle. Hello, and welcome back to the IC Interviews. Uh, I'm Dave Baxter, and today I'm joined by Hugh Sargent, uh, fund manager for River and Mercantile, who is often closely associated with the value style of investing. That association can certainly be seen in the recent performance of his portfolios, uh, the River and Mercantile UK recovery and global recovery funds that Hugh works on have both posted substantial returns in the last year. Uh, with the value growth debate continuing to rage on and mystify us all, uh, what better time to have a chat? Um, Hugh, thank you very much for, for joining today. Thanks for inviting me, Dave. So I, I must admit, I'm always uh, slightly wary of the, the value growth debate because it is, it is so slippery. It always seems quite difficult to assess whether value stocks will outperform and then whether that will last. We've seen some false dawns in the last decade or so. Um, but I was quite interested, I suppose, of, as one way of assessing things. Um, I saw last summer you put together a kind of 10-point checklist to gauge the prospects of value. So we had questions like, are value stocks um, unloved, um, have smaller companies underperformed? And then other questions kind of assessing the, the cyclical states of the economy and um, monetary policy. Um, obviously, you know, a, a big kind of um, moment, I suppose, for markets in the last half year or a bit more now has been the, the big cyclical rebounds. And now we've seen that kind of falter a bit. But how would your checklist checklist look now? Surely it's not quite as um, optimistic as it would be last summer. Uh, yeah, I mean that's a very good, uh, very good question, uh, Dave. And I mean, I think if you went back three months, um, you know, back end of Q1 this year, obviously value had uh, value and recovery stocks. You know, my style had a pretty strong run, so I think it would have been difficult at that point to argue that. We were still right at the bottom of of the cycle for value and recovery, and it was all to come. Part of it had been delivered. I mean, I was arguing at that point. Um, you know, we're we're sort of six months into um, what should be at least a three year return to to value and recovery uh, stock. So, I was still extremely optimistic, um, but perhaps not quite as aggressively optimistic as I was, you know, a year ago. But actually, over the last you know six to seven weeks, we've had quite a significant. Um, uh, uh, re-correction, I suppose, of value and recovery. Um, we can talk about the reasons why, but you know, value stocks, cheap, cheap stocks have have come back quite aggressively. Recovery stocks, reopening plays in in particular, have 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 drifted off. So where we are today, and I'm just at the beginning of writing my my quarterly reports. Um, you know, I would be all as optimistic, I think, about the return to value and recovery as as I, I was a year ago. Uh, if you look at the kind of classic um, uh, value versus recovery charts, whether it's MSCI global value or MSI, MSCI UK value versus recovery, they've corrected more than half of their relatively modest rally, uh, relatively modest in the context of 10 years of underperformance post the GFC. So half that rally or more has has corrected. Uh, and therefore, we're pretty close to uh, the bottom of the cycle again, um, which I think, you know, is a very attractive opportunity. And it's almost more attractive today than it was a year ago, because I think the outlook is is clear. Uh, the economic outlook is is clear. Um, uh, you know, we are getting through the worst of, of COVID. Um, um, 
if you look in the UK, the vast majority of, of, of people have been vaccinated or have over 90%, I think, have have the antibodies. So we're worse, we're through the worst of COVID. Economic stimulus is very still extremely uh, supportive from a fiscal or monetary perspective. Consumers are starting to spend again. Governments are ramping up green investment, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all sorts of reasons to be um, optimistic about the medium term outlook for, for economies. Value and recovery, uh, you know, B to play are geared to, to that uh, positive uh, economic outlook. They're very geared to profits recovering. So, you know, profits have you know clearly been destroyed or they were destroyed last year. If you look at margins, UK PLC back down to cycle lows uh, and starting to recover. And those profits are, you know, geared to the economic cycle and value and recovery type stocks are, are the best way of playing that exposure. And then the start valuations are again again cheap so a lot of our you know a lot of the 10 uh, 10 point checklists that that you mentioned I think are very much in in place uh, today again so I'm, I'm as optimistic about the outlook for value and recovery as as I've you know been uh, essentially as optimistic as I was a year ago as I said because the outlook I think is more more certain. How about the, I suppose, market appetite? Because what was interesting in the last week or so was we saw a fallback in government bond yields and some people might, might interpret that in a few ways, which are not especially great for the value trade, whether it's people starting to be a bit less, um, I suppose, kind of worried about inflation or kind of less bullish about economic growth um, or, or, yeah, simply kind of risk appetite falling off slightly. Yeah, I mean, I've been quite surprised by, by that. But I think what, what mm. happened, you know, Q, Q1, maybe people, um, you know, the value and recovery trade became a little bit overbought. The inflation, reflation trade, if you looked at the amount mm. of commentary on this, it was perhaps, you know, too too much front front of mind. So inevitably, I think we were going to see a period of, uh, technical technical re- retracement and then you know uh, economic numbers and indicators were just so strong that inevitably you got some uh, rolling over in terms of those numbers and that's that's likely to continue and, and then at some point the fed was going to, to make a statement that made markets a little bit more nervous or just stated you know j- j- just anticipating some movement up in, in interest rates i mean they had to do that really and the you know economies have clearly been so strong and the u.s recovery is really robust so We've had all those those elements thrown in into the pot, and maybe you know short term uh, you know bond yields have maybe backed up too much. But where and then we've had you know the latest uh, uh, phase, I suppose, of you know of of, of COVID, um, the, the current variant, which is seems to be very transmissible, um, and that's clearly you know, caused numbers to, to push up again in the UK and other parts of of the world. So you throw all that into the melting pot, and we've seen we have seen um, some greater caution about the economic outlook, um, which has equaled bond yields pull, pulling back, and that's acted as a catalyst for for you know investors to pull back from from value and recovery type 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 stocks, um, mm. and then there were various other elements of of that. So, you see, so banks, for example, you know having uh, been rallying quite strongly, pulled back in the UK and around the world, and then some of the reopening plays and some of the classic consumer cycles, which are geared to, to recovery, uh, as you know, sentiment soured a little bit, they've inevitably pulled back. But from our you know perspective, that equals you know significant uh, opportunities. So, while we were you know taking 
tactically, I suppose, taking some profits in, in, in some of you know the, 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 the kind of key stocks that we were buying a year, 18 months ago, which had had a strong run, and we were tactically taking some profits you know, through Q1. Uh, you know, those are the stocks that we're putting capital back into today, I would say, pretty aggressively, really, in anticipation of a, um, a return to our value and recovery type stocks. So you've taken profits, but then you've re-entered. Now it looks a bit more. Uh, well, I mean, I'm talking about loved. tactically. I mean, the shape of the mm. portfolio hasn't changed significantly over the last last year. Um, you know, Davis, in terms of how we manage, the, you know, the recovery portfolios. You know, these are focused on medium to long term wealth uh, wealth creation, uh, and the key factors that we look to exploit, exploit are value recovery, um, multi cap. Um, the portfolios I run, you know, will always have, you know, traditional value support uh, and trade cheap versus their benchmark from a kind of price to book or price to sales. So it's kind of classic, uh, quick hand ways of looking at whether portfolios are value portfolios. So we've all, you know, always had that, but then there's always going to be an element of, of, you know, tactical. Um, and, you know, tactically, we, we were looking to take some capital out of, of some of the real winners of the last year um, towards, you know, Q- Q1 this year. And, and you know, we, we're putting capital back into into those <laughs> stocks because they've some have retraced 10, 20, 30 uh, percent. And um, as I mentioned at the start, you, you know, you do run the UK fund, but of course, you also have a global fund. Um It'd be interesting to get your perspective on the UK. Um, I'm, I suppose it's had kind of several wins in the last year. Um, it's, it's had kind of many reasons to be unloved in recent years. And then I suppose several reasons to kind of come roaring back. Um, is that still the most interesting market in terms of kind of value investing or is there something else that's catching your eye a bit more? Yeah, I mean, from a value perspective, I mean, the UK is standout, really. I mean, it's, it's, it has rallied over the last last year, but still, you know, remains a, a laggard. Um, I mean, as you mentioned, I do run global global funds. You know, it's it's clear looking at you know um, regions around the world which regions are expensive. <laughs> the, the US because it's the cheerleader for for those big growth uh, growth stocks and, and has had great fundamentals over the last 10 years because it's that the cheerleader for that popular part of the market it trades trades ex, you know pretty expensive or very expensive um, and and then you go around the world and the real laggard I suppose is, is the UK because the UK uh, because of its benchmark makeup is probably the cheerleader for, for value um, you know it's got a big component of financials of, of, of energy of, of pharmaceuticals and those fit into the kind of value value camp and then as you suggested the last five years you know essentially post the referendum um, the UK background economic background political background has been one of you know quite significant uncertainty and as we know investors don't like uh, un, un, uncertainty um, so that combination of, of being a value benchmark with with that uncertainty element has meant that you know UK equities have very significantly derated versus uh, other other markets around the world and looks really cheap on you know from an absolute perspective so if you look at 
you know, after one year of recovered earnings, UK markets trading on only about 13 times uh, uh, earnings with, you know, an attractive free cash flow yield and, and a decent dividend yield as, you know, the likes of banks starting distributing capital uh, again. So, you've got some really attractive absolute valuation metrics for, for the UK. Um, and then you've got, you know, some of these uncertainties um, having been, you know, parked, I suppose, or essentially historical, um, you know, uh, the referendum and then Brexit, um, that's essentially in, in, in the past. Um, and you know, the, the political background is, is relatively is relatively stable. Um, and then, you know, the UK having had a difficult COVID is, is recovering pretty aggressively. So, we've got strong economic recovery um, and strong profits recovery for UK PLC to look forward to over the next two to three years. So, modest starting valuation and, and strong, pretty strong fundamentals. Um, and then within that, you know, we run a UK recovery portfolio, which, you know, trades cheap versus a cheap benchmark. Um, and we've got companies that should really grow their, you know, decent quality franchises, uh, which should grow their profits significantly over the next few years. So, yeah, I'm pretty bullish about UK. I mean, that's in a context of, you know, relatively expensive world out, out there. We can all find uh, assets and, 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 uh, and equities that, you know, clearly not cheap or clearly pretty expensive, trade expensive versus their historical multiples or versus their ability to generate profits and cash flow. So there's lots of expensive stuff out there. So I find it really quite heartening that one can still put a portfolio in you know, together that, you know, genuinely attractively valued and, and has decent profits prospects. Mm. And in the UK, what, what kind of um, stocks and what sectors are you finding most exciting or you think have kind of the biggest scope for um, substantial gains in, in the next few years or so? Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, um, I'll definitely take you through some of those. Maybe just a very quick Reminder of, you know, the philosophy and process, um, you know, the underlines, the, you know, the UK recovery fund and global recovery fund. Um, and just by quickly by way, by way of background, um, you know, the UK recovery fund was set up at the back end of the global financial crisis. Um, so the idea was then there were, you know, a huge number of companies where profits have been negatively impacted. Uh, but by that economic downturn, um, so so a lot of recovery opportunities available, um, and, and then the global recovery fund, which is the sister fund of UK recovery, was actually put in place back end of the European sovereign debt crisis. So we're very much led by investment opportunities. Um, the, the funds focus on value recovery and multi cap investing. So you know, looking to invest from the largest companies down to really quite micro cap uh, companies. You know, a little bit different from, you know, traditional deep value managers, uh, our philosophy, which we put in place, you know, when, before we were managing any money back in, back in 06 is, is called PVT, short for potential valuation and timing. So it's a bit more rounded. The three factors that we're looking for potential saying we, we want to buy companies where we're confident that, you know, shareholder value. Uh, potential is is significant. I.e., they can grow profits and cash flow. Valuation, you know, from from a traditional school of value investing, wanting to pay fifty p for a pound worth of medium term intrinsic value. Also, you know, valuation backed up by you know attractive spot uh, valuation metrics such as earnings yields and, and pre cash flow yields. And then importantly, we look at this time timing element. 
and we use quantitative and fundamental fundamental indicators of, of timing, which I think is really important for the recovery side of things. So you don't want to be buying something just because it's it's cheap. That's yeah, a, a reasonable reason for buying it, and typically buying things cheap, you know, has generated alpha over, over the years. Uh, but I think that shouldn't be the only reason. So we're looking for potential valuation and also timing. So indicators that the fortunes of a company have, have bottomed out. You know, that's profitability bottoming out and starting to beat expectations and share price technicals. So the share price bottoming out and starting to beat expectations. And for recovery stocks, you know, clear evidence the management understand what they need to deliver. So you know, that's that's the that's the philosophy. A little bit different from. Uh, traditional uh, value. <laughs> Sorry for that long uh, background. <laughs> and just, just you know, moving moving on to, you know, where we see the kind of key uh, key opportunities uh, opportunities to today. Um, I mean, we do see value in in lots of in lots of places, both both UK, which I'll focus on, but but also global. Um, just segmenting the portfolio in terms of the opportunity set. First of all, you know, deep traditional value. So that's short duration stocks um, that, you know, typically will benefit from higher interest rates. So, uh, you know, we, we've, we're finding opportunities there and looking to allocate more capital. That would include the classics such as, you know, banks. So in the UK, NatWest and Lloyds. And then looking globally, banks like Santander and actually some of the emerging market banks like Bangkok, uh, Bangkok Bank. And then insurance companies, old, old mutual uh, in the UK, uh, which is very lowly valued, uh, essentially exposed to South Africa and African life, life insurance. Uh, but with a big holding in, in a bank and actually it's crystallizing value by selling uh, some of its banking holdings. So there's the catalyst uh, there for um, you know, the value gap to reduce. So that's the traditional deep value area. Classic recovery stocks, we'd be talking about things like uh, you know, Whitbread, so ho- hotel operators, so they operate the Premier Inns uh, franchise, you know, which is taking market share because, um, um, you know, budget hotels, you know, typically over the last few years have, have been taking taking share in the UK and they've got a very strong franchise. Definitely hotels haven't been an easy place to be over the last uh, 18 months, but they're starting to see occupancy pick up and, and you know, profits growth should be robust over the next two to three years. And then they've got this growth engine in in Germany as well, which is is um, underpenetrated in terms of uh, budget budget ho- uh, budget hotels, um, uh, other types of reopening plays. So, so one a good example would be Restaurant Group, uh, which is you know one of the biggest owners of, of, of restaurants. <laughs> That's what it says. That's what it says on, on the on the tin. Surprising, but it actually owns the Wagamama chain, which is you know a good growth uh, franchise. Um, uh, and, you know, again, with reopening, um, they're obviously going to see much better use of their, um, uh, you know, physical sites, but they've also grown, you know, the, the delivery uh, element, uh, to, to the franchise, uh, during, during lockdown. So they've actually got, you know, a benefit from, um, you know, people coming back to their, their physical restaurants, but also being able to continue to grow the delivery side. And then a lot, there have been a lot of clearly a lot of casualties in the restaurant industry. Capacity has been withdrawn. Um, and that means the terms of trade for the, the, the guys that remain have strengthened, um, you know, the ability to negotiate with, um, property landlords, for example, They're in a much better place than they were a few years ago. Uh, whether that's for existing restaurants or as they look to, to grow, 
the restaurant chain. So, you know, that's in a good, good position. So classic recovery stock and then with, you know, medium term uh, growth characteristics Then UK domestics have, you know, derated again over the last month or two. And that creates another opportunity. So we're buying back into house builders. So house builders would have been one of the areas that we're probably taking profits. If you go back Q1 uh, this year, they've retraced uh, quite a lot. And we see an opportunity there, actually, with a focus on uh, Barclay, which you know is is pretty heavily focused on London, and London's been quite a laggard versus the regions for well-known reasons over the last couple of years. But we think London, London's going to be back. Um, so see that as an opportunity, and then following on from London coming back, we like you know some real estate um, uh, in in London, Capital Counties in particular, which controls Covent Garden. Uh, for, uh, real real estate uh, market, and we just think Covent Garden is you know, it's an iconic place in in London where people like to hang out in normal times, and we'll love to hang out again over the next two to three years. And, and then they're taking some of the shops, um, you know, that have ended up with some more more uh, luxury boutiquey uh, types of shop, shops uh, alongside you know the the places to eat and the, the more social types of shops and that's allowing them to push up push up rents over the medium term it trades at a you know decent discount to quite depressed assets so we see that as as really attractive so hopefully that gives you you know some ideas mm. of, of the opportunities and i can give you some more global ones if, um, if, if we want to go down that path it's sticking with the uk for now how um i suppose one sector you've mentioned a lot of consumer facing sectors there um but one sector that you haven't directly mentioned that fund managers perhaps have been put off a bit in the last year is uh, retail. You know, some people have finally just totally given up on retail in the last year because they just don't like the unpredictability and it's very difficult, I think, to pick the uh, the winners there. Um, how do you feel on that that space? Yeah, I mean, obviously, retail divides into you know bricks and mortar and and and, and, and online. Um, obviously, I don't think you want to be going. Uh, anywhere close to you know pure bricks and mortar retailers, um, probably. I mean that you know, see value managers have to talk about <laughs> value traps and uh, you know uh, retailers that have in, not been able to move um, into a digital environment to have a digital platform to run alongside their their, their physical stores. You know. Con- continue to i think be clear value value traps that said there is relatively rare that there's a retailer listed retailer now that that doesn't have a, a reasonably robust uh, digital platform so those value traps are you know quite small so yeah i mean we're comfortable we've been comfortable investing you know more capital in into to retail but we probably have more in in you know some of the e-commerce plays than than we do in in bricks and mortars or or omnichannel plays which one of our favorite stocks over last year has been uh, asos uh, which actually, if you look at its um, EV to sales trades on a really pretty low valuation, you know, a discount to traditional traditional retailers. Uh, over the last few years, it's had one or two issues, and and because of that, it's kind of classic recovery play. It's got a decent market position in the UK, Europe, extending its franchise into the US pretty pretty successfully, um, and obviously benefiting from 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 lockdown. Buying, bought in some um, you know, new brands pretty attractively um, uh, from some of the um, bricks and mortar operators that, that struggled. Um, so, so yeah, we like uh, we we like that one for 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 example. Um, 
And another, I suppose, um, fairly kind of divisive sector that's prominent in the UK is um, oil and gas. Um, how how do you generally approach kind of the energy sector and the, and the oil and gas space? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I think like all fund managers, um, you know, um, clearly you need to consider sustainability uh, elements um, uh, for um, all the right reasons uh, in terms of the, the world needing to become more sustainable, but also for financial reasons in the, you know, businesses um, that, that aren't, aren't sustainable from from that perspective are clearly going to have higher risk premiums. So you need to take that 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 into that into account. You know, at River and Mercantile, we've uh, put in place um, uh, our, our own um, ESG philosophy. We call it sustainable PVT that runs alongside our core PVT approach. So we look at all our stocks through that additional uh, additional uh, lens. Now the energy sector is, you know, clearly actually a classic value and recovery sector. So as for value and recovery managers, uh, we don't want to just park it and say we can't in- invest in it, and, and we don't do that um, because uh, you know the fundamentals are strong at the moment for the energy market. Oil price, like other commodities, uh, has has been strong, and the fundamentals look strong because there's been so little investment in terms of producing, uh, you know, carbon producing oil over the last few years, and there's very little investment at the moment. So, the the kind of demand supply d- dynamics look positive, um, and then the companies that operate in that space, space, you know, are, are lowly lowly valued. So they are classic value and recovery plays. Um, but uh, we need to take into account that that second lens sustainability. So our, our focus in that space, we're a little bit overweight versus the benchmark, which means we have 8% of the portfolio UK. Uh, globally, we have about 4.5%, so a little bit overweight versus uh, benchmark uh, with a focus on you know companies that have clearly com- communicated how, um, how they're uh, um, – Moving their energy production from being 100% carbon to to other other uh, you know other areas of of greener and uh, energy uh, production. So you know that would be our, our focus. It's on on the improvers, and that would be our whole approach to sustainability. We have value and recovery managers. Um, it'd be wrong for us to exclude um, stocks, but we need to think about it, and we think about it in the in the lens in the context of of improvers, companies that are clearly explaining how they're um, you know the, how they're Im- improving their their um, approach to sustainability. And mm, mm. um, moving on to your kind of, I suppose, more general approach. Um, something we write a lot about is the, I suppose, the behavioural element of investing, um, which is uh, obviously quite quite difficult. Lots of traps there. Um, being a value manager, I suppose, you have to almost have nerves of steel in this space because as you've said, it's been a very difficult decade, um, lots of periods of kind of underperformance and, um, you know, your kind of, <clears throat> your approach means that you are not necessarily going into those big winners like say the fangs in, in the global space, but how, how do you kind of stick to your guns when the market is not really going the way that would, would favor what you hold? Yeah, I mean, there's two elements to that. I mean, the, the first element is that um, you've got to stay. I think, as a fund manager, you know, you have to stay stay in the game. You know, you can't mm-hmm. afford to be um, too narrow in terms of your your philosophy. That means that that, that means that you know, 
during the difficult times for your philosophy, you you really do do struggle, um, and you're significantly behind behind the benchmark with all the pressures associated uh, with that. So you need to stay in the game, and I think the way we've done that is is by having a, you know a broader approach to, to to value than traditional deep value managers. So I've talked about you know potential valuation and and, and timing. So the potential and timing alongside buying things uh, buying things uh, cheaply. The, the multi-cap nature of of of, of our approach, uh, you know, which means that we've benefited from you know um, uh, premium returns generated by small small cap companies. The fact that we do think about you know the big picture cycle, so we didn't get overexcited um, by you know theoretically cheap uh, UK domestic stocks post post the uh, post the referendum we were actually cautious about the UK cycle at that point because it you know the UK economy had recovered pretty aggressively from the global financial crisis and a lot of the domestic stocks had done particularly well so we thought it was too early so having that you know top down uh, elements so there's various parts of the philosophy and process um, have allowed us to stay in the game and, and generate you know pretty robust returns UK in particular globally also globally harder because just the nature of the global benchmark so dominated by US equities so dominated by mega cap growth stocks particularly difficult benchmark for value and recovery managers but we still stayed in in the game so that's the f- the first element in terms of answering your question the, the second you're quite right it has been an emotional roller coaster for value and recovery uh, managers um, i think it was particularly difficult you know q1 last year when it, we went into 20 you know 2020 with the outlook looking more robust uh, with um, uh, interest rates kind of trending upwards uh, value starting to do better and then everything changed kind of almost overnight with with the pandemic so you saw a, another leg down after 10 difficult years for value which was particularly trying i think most value managers found that really quite quite emotional but you then have to you know you have to stick you know stick with your stick with your approach if you have a clear philosophy and process and if you're like like us you've been applying that approach for 20 plus years you know that it it works you have faith in it you just stick with it day in uh, day in day out uh, and then you have the support of you know the, the platform that you work within the, the 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 business that you work within most importantly the team and the individuals that you work with who who are there to to support you uh, during those those difficult times and then you know you do have fund management can be a lonely business uh, every so often um and you know you you have to have the i suppose the dna to be able to to uh, manage that that loneliness during the difficult times and just stick with stick with your approach. So yeah, that's one 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 one. That is what one has had to do over the last last few years. But you know, you get the rewards um, if you stick to that approach. Like you know, the last year, as you mm. kindly described at the beginning, returns have been strong, and and you know, the recovery funds are annualizing at twelve thirteen percent. Uh, plus per, per annum since inception. So, you know, those are returns that, you know, created a decent amount of wealth for our clients. And that's what it's, it's all about. Not necessarily straight line, but over the medium to long term, attractive numbers. And, and I'm a significant investor in the strategies uh, myself. So, you know, obviously, one benefits personally from those, you know, attractive medium to long term returns by, by sticking with the approach. 
I suppose on the other hand, there is an argument perhaps that um, critics might say that uh, at least in the last decade, the the value approach holding a value fund has been almost around the kind of market timing. You know, if you had it at the right points, then you've made phenomenal returns, but then you've had to kind of put up with um, underperforming for, for quite a sustained period of time. And can you therefore... Can you actually make a case for a value fund as a kind of core holding, or is it is it more something you want alongside different styles? I think yeah. I mean, I think um, most most uh, wealth managers or asset allocators, um, guardians of other people's capital, would put you know value a lot alongside other styles. So you know, classically, uh, growth or quality managers, the well known. <laughs> very well-known managers in that space so you put value uh, alongside um, as as a good diversifier um, um, but but I think you no know, I don't think the last 10 years I mean if you look pre the global financial crisis pre the last 10 years it was rare for value to underperform but for more than one or two years they were relatively isolated incidents for cheap mm. stocks to, to underperform so I think the last 10 years has been an exception ra- rather than the norm um, for various reasons, which have been, you know, fully described by many people over the last few years, as to why you know values particularly struggled uh, over the last ten. I do think the next five to ten years will be will, will be different. Um, will will be much more supportive of of value. Or there's certainly much more balance in terms of value versus growth or quality. Much more balance. One reason for that, you know, we've already talked about just a slightly different environment in terms of. The economic background, nominal GDP running at a at a at a stronger rate than it has done post post GFC, which will mean that the interest rate and bond yield environment will will be more supportive, um, and and then kind of some of the kind of classic you know um, growth beneficiaries. I mean, some of them have become so large, you know, they're trillion dollar companies. At some point, that you know, that you know, the, the level of growth that they've delivered over the last ten years is going to be sustainable going uh, going forward. Um, I think it'd be harder to sustain. So some of their really strong fundamentals, I think, are likely to to wane. And value and recovery stocks, you know, fundamentals will be really pretty strong over the next two to three years. So yeah, I think it'd be much more balanced, um, and the periods of underperformance will be much less dramatic and and more short lived than they have been over the last mm. the last ten years. And so it's it's right, I think, to have. You know, good good value managers, good value and recovery managers, uh, alongside other other types of of managers, and and to be comfortable that actually you're going to get less volatility than one has had over the last ten years. Mm. Um. So yeah, you mentioned we we have names like the Fangs have kind of dominated returns in a, a global context in the US. Um. In your global fund, you know, you're notably and perhaps unsurprisingly, you're notably underweight to the US. Um, US is such a huge component of the MSCI World Index nowadays. Um, but where do you, you know, where do you actually find the opportunities? You know, what what actually stands out if you're essentially having to kind of ignore some of those those stocks that have led the way for for so long and have become so um, overpowering in markets? Yeah, no, I, mean, I think it's a good point. I mean. You know, we, it's not like we don't like the U- U.S. I mean, we actually have even global recovery has thirty percent in the U.S. So you know, some by far our biggest um, uh, allocation uh, regionally. But you know, in the context of um, 
wanting to run a genuinely global portfolio and look for PVT uh, recovery opportunities all, all around the world um, uh, and to offer our clients something really quite quite different, um, I, I think. Um, and then in the context of the fact that we all know U.S. equities are quite expensive. Just look at cyclically adjusted PEs. They are high versus history. Um, and they are quite dominated by, you know, the loved parts of, of the market, you know, um, the, those fangs as, as, you, as, as we, we talk about them. Mm. So it's just right, I think, to take a, from our perspective as value and recovery managers, to take a, a broader approach and to hunt um, all around the world. And, and the, you know, the fantastic opportunities I, I mentioned earlier, you know, in a relatively expensive world, uh, it's great to be able to find, you know, good franchises on on genuinely attractive valuations, and one can find lots of those uh, around the world. So where where are we overweight uh, elsewhere? We're overweight the UK, but but as a UK historically UK fund manager, I haven't wanted that to dominate our, our portfolio. So we have eight or nine percent in in the UK. We've got decent exposure to to Europe. I mean, Europe is a, a classic high beta play on economic recovery. Um, and, and valuations are, are, are more modest. Um, and there are some laggard parts of Europe which are playing catch up and are well supported by, um, you know, fiscal support. So areas like, you know, Italy. Uh, and Italy's got a re- really, a, you know, exciting digital. It's, quite, it's lagged in, in that whole area, but they're investing aggressively in digital. And they've got some, you know, pretty young businesses that are growing at a clip and, and hardly have any coverage. So we find that, you know, those that area interesting. Asia Pacific, we find interesting. I mean, China, um, you know, one area I'm kind of banging the table on, you know, is actually, you know, the Chinese in, internet stocks, which have lagged incredibly over the last mm. year versus their versus their US peers. And things like, you know, Baidu, actually, is probably the cheapest mega cap stock I've ever seen in my career. You know, its market cap is, um, is if you strip out cash and some equity holdings that it has in quoted businesses, um, its, it's, its value is about um, 45 billion US. You compare that with, you know, the equivalents in the US, which are 500 billion trillion bit businesses. Um, and that market cap is justified by its, you know, traditional search business, where it has a 70% market share. Um, um, so th- that that business alone, um, you know, pays for for your equity. And then you've got the, you know, number one artificial intelligence platform in in China, uh, the number one autonomous vehicle platform in in China, and the number three cloud business behind uh, Alibaba and Tencent in China. So you've got some three three really strong platforms, which which should show huge growth over the next next few years. And and you've got all that for free. Um, So, uh, you know, that's an example of, you know, mispricing i think extreme mispricing around the world that we're you know we're kind of here to exploit so asia pacific and and you know emerging markets i suppose we're overweight a lot of the rest of the world and underweight the u.s but um (laughs) as i wanted to say i mean it's not that we we don't like the u.s always lots of opportunities to buy stocks in in the u.s we do have 30 percent of the portfolio there but we want to provide a genuinely global value and recovery uh portfolio Mm. Oh, very interesting stuff there. Um, I'm afraid that's all we have time for. Um, but um, thank you, Hugh, very much for, for joining us today. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.